Well, this week I uh, finished up uh, the biography on Diedrich Bonhoeffer that I told you that I was reading. And as I looked at the uh, last days of his life, I couldn't help but see a correlation with what we're going to look at this morning when we examine Paul's life. And uh, I wanted to share that with you a little bit. For those of you who don't know, Diedrich Bonhoeffer was a, a German pastor who lived during World War II. And he was one of the few people who recognized that Hitler and his regime were intent upon evil and not the good of Germany as their propaganda had suggested. Bonhoeffer, like Paul, was eventually thrown in prison for the cause of Christ. And like Paul, he often wrote letters from prison to those he cared for. And like Paul, very often those letters were written to give encouragement to those who were concerned about him. Bonhoeffer was very close to his family, and soon after he was taken captive, he, he writes one of those letters from prison to his family. In fact, it was the first letter that he wrote. L- listen to how he focused his, his attention, despite his circumstances, on the needs of others. This is what he says. He says, The only thing that bothers me is the thought that you are being tormented by my anxiety or by anxiety about me and not sleeping or eating properly. To kind of put this into context, not too long before the Gestapo came and took him away and put him into a concentration camp where he was being held, uh, his family had come together, as they often do, and celebrated his father's 75th uh, birthday. Uh, The family often got together. Bonhoeffer played the piano. There were other instruments, and that was just something that they did together. So he recalls that as he continues writing. He says this, I can still hear the choral that we sang in the morning and evening with all the voices and instruments. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Shelter thee under his wings and gently sustain us. That is true, he writes to his family, and it is what we must always rely on. (laughs) Even in prison, he was caring for the needs of others is more important than his own. And everyone knew the danger of this situation because what had happened at this point in time is there had been an assassination attempt on the life of Hitler and it had failed. And as a result of this, there was a list of conspirators' names who came out and they were all taken and put into concentration camps, Bonhoeffer being one of those men. So Hitler was not one to show any mercy and death was a very real possibility. And yet... These two realities, life and death, did not alter Bonhoeffer's single-minded focus. He, he, like Paul, knew that he might soon die, and yet he remained devoted to Christ and to those that he had come to serve. Just a short time before he was in prison, Bonhoeffer became engaged to a, a young woman that he loved very much. And as you might expect, she was deeply Uh, distraught by his imprisonment. And so he wrote to her as well. And some of those letters that he wrote to Maria was her name, some of the most moving letters you will ever read. As he did with his family, very often he wrote to give her comfort uh, in in his circumstances. This is one of the things he said. He said, What does happiness and unhappiness mean, Maria? They depend so little on circumstances and so much more on what goes on inside us. I want you to know that I am thankful every day to have you. 
you and all of you. And that makes me happy and cheerful. (laughs) Even when others had caused a celebration, like his best friend who he writes to as he prepares to get married, he wants to make sure that Nothing that is happening takes away from their joy in that moment. He writes from a prison cell, remember, these words to his friend. He says, I am here for a purpose, and I hope to fulfill it. Nothing would be more wrong-headed than to turn one of these rare occasions of joy, as you are now experiencing, into calamity because of my present situation. However thankful we may be for all of our personal pleasures We mustn't, for a moment, lose sight of the great things we are living for. And they must shed light and not gloom on our day. Isn't that incredible? Bonhoeffer refused to let his desperate situation become a distraction to him or to others. He did not stop living even as he prepared to die. As he said, he had a purpose And it was that single-minded focus that he had to fulfill that purpose. At one point earlier in his life, he, he writes these words, which now seem prophetic to us as we read them. He said, The Christian life, through its religious trappings, should never be a means to escape life. Rather, it should be the means to live life more fully. Bonhoeffer, like Paul, lived with an understanding of those two realities, of life, and of death. And and he found joy in both of them, as did Paul. As we will see this morning, he'll write, for to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. I, I believe Bonhoeffer was a man in our recent history who understood those words and lived that truth. And I pray that as we examine the text this morning, the same would be true for us. So before we do that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we uh, confess to you this morning that, uh, well, there may be things that are occupying our mind that would distract us from something that you would desire for us to hear and to understand. And so we pray that as we stop for just a minute, that you would rest our mind. That you would give us a single-minded focus of listening And that we would depend on you and your spirit to work in our hearts and in our lives so that what you speak to us this morning transforms us so that in the end, our life might exalt you more fully. That is our prayer, Father, and we ask that you anoint this time for your good purposes. We pray this in your name. Amen. Turn, if you will, to Philippians Chapter 1, verse 19. Philippians chapter 1, verse 19. If you would, begin reading with me in verse 19. The first couple of verses says this. For I know this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. When I first read these two verses, it seemed kind of confusing to me. 
On one hand, Paul is saying that with confident assurance, he will be delivered. It seems that he's expecting to be set free from prison in order to continue his work of ministry. But then as you continue to read on, he goes on to say that he is certain that Christ will be exalted, whether by life or by death, which seems to indicate that he doesn't know what the outcome will be. And as we read on this conflict between these two possibilities, life and death, becomes increasingly evident. So what did Paul mean? What was his confident assurance? Well, in order to answer that question, I think we can look at verse 19 and find a very important clue and a very important word that we see in our Bibles as deliverance. The Greek word for that word deliverance is soteria. It means salvation. It's where we get our big theological word, and I I do this for you, Mark, because I know you love big theological words, soteriology. (laughs) It's the study of salvation. So this tells us that when Paul looked at his circumstances, he said with confident assurance, I know that this will turn out for my salvation. I don't believe he was predicting either his release or his death. Instead, Paul looked at his situation and he said, no matter what Caesar decides to do with me, I am confident that my ultimate deliverance comes through my faith in Jesus Christ alone. It was a bold declaration of the conviction that God is faithful and is in control of all things at all times for all eternity. It's as we talked about last week where, where Paul is viewing life through the lens of the gospel. He's expressing his, his confident assurance that, that no matter what the outcome is, Christ will be exalted, whether by life or by death. His deliverance, his salvation is in God's hands. And in either case, he knows that he will be redeemed By the hand of God. But then Paul explains how he came to that confident assurance. He says, I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and through the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice, first of all, that that Paul connects his confident assurance to the prayers of the Philippian church. When he does this, Paul is declaring that the gospel is much more than a private transaction between him and God. Although it may begin there, Paul understands that his life from that point on is interwoven into the life of the body of Christ. God has called him not to single-handedly save the world, but to join in the communion of the saints, which God fits together in order that we might stand together encouraging each other towards love and good deeds so that christ might be revealed through the testimony of the church paul understands and and his words should remind us that that god is redeeming the world through the testimony of the church he has chosen in his sovereign plan to use imperfect people people like you and I, to declare His perfect truth, salvation in Christ alone, 
to the othermost parts of the world. And no one person, not even Paul, can do this on their own. We are created for community. We are called, as Paul later writes, to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. One of the reasons that Paul is able to maintain his confident assurance in the midst of his circumstances is because he is connected to community through their prayer and through the presence of the saints. I think this is a good place for us to to stop and consider for ourselves. Are we connected to community through the prayer and the presence of the saints? Are you standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel? Most of us will not be put in prison for the cause of Christ. But that does not mean that we won't feel bondage for the cause of Christ when we live in a sick and desperate world. Good grief. Just think about trying to raise a godly family in in an ungodly world. It can be agonizingly difficult at times. And, And what about maintaining your devotion to the covenant of marriage in a world that is full of broken promises? And how about the integrity of doing what is right in your job when everything tells you to win at all costs, whatever it takes. God calls us to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. There's nothing easy about this, and we simply cannot do it. Unless we stand firm together. You were created for community. And the testimony of the church depends on your commitment to one another. And two things are happening if this is not true in your life. Your growth is stunted. And the testimony of the church is weakened. Those two things are happening. When we do not live according to God's design, investing in the relationships of the body of Christ. So for his sake and for the sake of others who depend on you, stand together for the faith of the gospel. But that's only half the equation. Paul says that he's strengthened by the prayers of the saints, but he's also empowered by the provision of of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Our commitment to to one another has a purpose. And that purpose is carried through by the work of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit does things for us that we cannot do for one another. I want you to just think about how Jesus explained this to his disciples as he prepared to leave and go to the cross. He tells them specifically, I will give you another counselor and he will be with you forever. See, the disciples experienced firsthand the counsel of Jesus, how he gave them guidance when he sent them out, how he spoke to them with wisdom and helped them understand the things that that, that they could not figure out on their own. Several times Jesus would tell a parable, and you know this to be true when you look at the Gospels, they would come to him and they would say, 
Jesus, that was a great story. But what does it mean? What does it mean? And Jesus would gently explain to them what it meant. Knowing this, Jesus tells them in this conversation, he says, when I am gone, the Father will send you the Holy Spirit and he will, as I did, teach you all things and will remind you of everything I said to you. He goes on in a later conversation and says, when you are brought before the synagogues and rulers and authorities, do not worry how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that moment what to say. Paul says, I am strengthened by the prayers of the saints as we stand together in the faith of the gospel. But it is the Spirit that gives me just what I need in the moment in which I need it. He will give me guidance in where I should go and understanding in what I should learn. People are important, but they're not omnipresent. God, on the other hand, will never leave you and He will never forsake you. His Spirit indwells you. His Spirit strengthens you. His Spirit equips you for every good work that He prepares beforehand so that you, His children, can walk in them. Paul says, I am strengthened by the faith in the prayers of of the people and I'm empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say that, that that purpose that he has been given is protected by the sovereign hand of God. He says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but with all boldness, Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. In the original context, that, that those words, earnest expectation, have a, kind of a, a visual picture attached to them of, of someone craning their neck to catch a glimpse of something, something that lies up ahead. This earnest expectation and hope is an intense anticipation of something that is that is sure to happen it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when paul is saying it doesn't matter what happens to me because god's glory will prevail in both my life and my death i cannot wait to see his hand of redemption and what he will do in order to bring his work of salvation throughout the world Paul is demonstrating for us his his confident assurance, that that assurance that we can have as children of God when we understand and believe that God is in control, that His glory will prevail, that He works all things for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And this purpose, Paul reminds us, is to exalt Christ in order to redeem the world. The church exists for this purpose, to exalt Christ in order that He might redeem the world. And yet as firm as this conviction is in in Paul's heart, he still struggles in his mind as to where to, to focus his attention. He goes on in the next verses to give a very authentic look into his heart as to what he is going through. And so let's look at that together. Verse 21, if you would, read with me. 
He says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I I do not know which to choose. But I'm hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is very much better. And yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. See, Paul has two things occupying his mind. Going home to be with the Lord or remaining in the flesh for the sake of ministry. He says that he doesn't know which to choose. (laughs) But really, he doesn't have the ability to choose either one, does he? And Paul's a smart guy, and I think he knows that. What I think Paul is explaining for us is just a very real picture of the battle that is going on in his mind. The, the, the struggle to focus on what is most profitable for his life. Paul knows that he cannot choose whether to live or to die. But Paul knows that he can choose how to live and how to die. He says, I'm hard-pressed from both directions. Having to, the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. What he is saying here is that life this side of heaven is hard. It's hard. And to be honest, I'm ready to go home. That's what he's saying. This makes me think of the soldiers who sacrifice so much to to fight for our freedoms. Many times they are in difficult situations where, where their life is constantly in danger. They have to avoid snipers and, and roadside bombs. Every day, very often, is a battle to survive to carry out the mission to which they have been called. And I bet, on more than one occasion, they say to themselves with their back against the bunker, I just want to go home. I just want to go home. I want to be in a a place of peace where I can live in the freedom that I'm fighting for on the behalf of other people. I really believe that's what, what Paul is saying. I think when he cranes his neck with eager anticipation, he catches a glimpse of what is to come. A place of freedom where there is no more sickness or disease, no more tears, no more sin, or even the ability to sin. Paul knows that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The place where the perfecting work of God is complete. And we enjoy our Creator God in unending, uninterrupted fellowship for all eternity. That, he says, is very much better. But then he stops. And he thinks about this. And he says, but something's more necessary. Departing to be with Christ is very much better. But to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. For Paul, Christ is more important than anything this life has to offer. There is nothing that holds him here that he can't have in fullness when he sees Christ face to face. But others, serving others for Paul is more important than being with Christ. 
That's what Paul is saying. Being with Christ without question is the better choice for me. And I eagerly anticipate that day. But remaining here is more necessary for your sake. And for that reason, I will set my mind on that. On serving you. Now, this is something I think really deserves our attention. I believe this little exercise that Paul has given us the the privilege to enter into as he struggles with this in his mind has led him to a place to identify his primary purpose in life. And wouldn't you agree that that's something that we need to know? Have you ever wondered in your own mind, God, why am I here? That's a great question. Because I, I think that is what, as we look at the passage this morning, Paul is struggling through in his own mind. When you compare what is in, in heaven and, and what we have here on earth, this is not the better option, right? That is very much better. And so it begs the question, if God has prepared a place for us that is infinitely better than anything we have here on earth, then why on earth are you here? Why are you here? I believe that Paul answers the question for himself. And I believe it should answer the same question for us as well. He seems to answer it most profoundly in the very quoted words, for me to live is Christ. (laughs) To live is Christ. We know those birds, but what does it mean? It almost sounds like bad grammar, doesn't it? To live is, is Christ. But because I believe this is so important for Paul, we see him repeat this same thing several places in the New Testament. Let me give you a couple of examples. He he tells the Galatians in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. He, He tells the Corinthians, he says, Christ died for all, so that they who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. I think when Paul is telling us to live as Christ, he is urging us to live a a Christ-centered, Christ-empowered, Christ-exalting life. A life like Christ, which does not seek to be served, but to serve. A life like Paul's that exists for the sake of others. He said, I want to remain here for your sake, for your joy, and your progress in the faith. We are to be Christ-centered so that we recognize that there is no life outside of Him. John makes that very clear. He says, he who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son does not have life. When we are in Christ, we are His possession, a bondservant. As Paul began, when he writes this letter, he says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. This means we exist for the cause of Christ, and we are indebted to serve Him alone. Christ-centered and Christ-empowered because 
we rely on the provision of the Holy Spirit, just as Paul said he does. This empowering spirit is what gave him the boldness that he proclaims. It is what allowed the fruitful labor to be produced. It it was the source of their progress and the joy in their faith. And when this is the, the purpose and the power in our life, the natural outcome inevitably is a Christ-exalting life. And in the end, that is the reason why we are here. That is the reason why we are here. Every single child of God exists to exalt Christ in everything we do. Why on earth are you here? To exalt Christ to the ends of the earth. That is our single most important purpose in life. Exalt Christ in your marriage. Exalt Christ in your job. Exalt Christ in your family. Exalt Christ in your speech. I didn't say it was easy, but I am confident that it is why we are here. So I want you to consider what that looks like in your life. And to do that, I want you to to consider the statement that Paul made, and I want you to complete it for yourself. For me, Bill, for me, Scott, for me, Doug, to live is what? What do you put in there? For me to live is fill in the blank. Maybe you just want to enjoy life. So you say, for me to live is to laugh. For some of you, maybe you're a scholar at heart and you like to study and get into the deep truths of Scripture perhaps and you say, for me to live is to learn. For some of you, maybe you enjoy the finer things of life. So for for me to live is to golf (laughs) or to shop or to travel. How would you finish the statement? We can choose to fill that blank with just about anything. But as a believer in Jesus Christ... We exist primarily for one thing, to exalt the name of Christ. Tom Cady asked me last week, he said, Todd, what is your passion? What's inside your belly that you just can't hardly hold inside? Tom, this is it. I want our lives be so wrapped up in Jesus Christ that we exude the fragrance of Christ in everything we do. Let's learn together. Let's study God's word together. Let's grow in our faith. But go. Go. Go live out the life of Christ that you have been granted. Be more than a consumer. Give your life away. Be as Paul tells us to be. Live your life for the sake of others. Serve the needy. Feed the hungry. Comfort the brokenhearted. Don't get content within our Christian cocoon, so much so that we don't impact the world around us. Remember what Bonhoeffer said. What we do in our Christian circles should never be a means to escape life. It should be the means by which we live life more fully. 
Speak the word of God without fear. Remember, that's what we talked about when Paul was in prison and he talked about those who were trusting in the Lord. He says they have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Be that person. Because I want you to think about something, and and maybe you've never thought about this before, but what is one of the one things that you can do here in heaven, or here on earth, as as a privilege in your life in Christ that you will not do in heaven? Share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Heaven will be populated only with those who know and believe that truth. That is a privilege that exists only here. So speak the word of God without fear. But also understand that that when you look at your life, that that's only a small part of the the time that you have in terms of the conversations that, that may exist. Most of life is not what you say, it is how you live that affords you the opportunity to say those things, right? So I have confidence and and assurance in my own heart and mind that every relationship you pursue should have as a motive behind it the opportunity to speak the word of truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter if you're selling food, Chris, or if it doesn't matter if you're an attorney, Job. It doesn't matter what you do in life. Everything you do should be done to exalt Christ. I love what I do here at the church, but I want to tell you something. One of the things that I miss is what you get to do every day. When you go out and live life among people who do not know Christ, and that aroma of who He is in you can exude from you in such a way that that people are drawn to what it means to follow Christ because they see it in your life. That is a privilege that you have here on earth, that doesn't exist in heaven. I've said before, there are no missionaries in heaven. When I say that, I don't mean like actual missionaries, because obviously there are missionaries in heaven. But there's no mission work in heaven. That's an earthly job that we are privileged to do. My family and I watched Chariots of Fire. I know it's 30 years after the movie came out. Saw it for the first time this week. And you know the, the storyline behind that. And, and Eric Little, who was a man who believed and had convictions in his faith. And you remember that very quoted phrase that he said. He said, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. So whatever that is for you in your life, go do it and feel his pleasure. Exalt him in everything you do. Because here's the deal. I love what John Piper says when he says, we God is glorified most. Uh, we, let me think about this. When we are... Somebody help me? Yeah, that's it. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Right? So pursue Him with all your heart, mind, and strength. And let that satisfaction that we have in Jesus Christ be the aroma that exudes in everything that we do. And if God made you fast, then run so that you can feel his pleasure. And whatever it is, let it come out. Go and make a difference in the world. Exalt the name of Christ. That's why we exist. That's why we exist. Let's pray. God, I ask that you uh, speak deeply into our hearts so that we can live out the truth of your word in ways that are filled with passion and conviction and the assurance of the things that you've promised so that we can be bold 
and speak um, with confidence, but also to live with that same confidence, knowing that we have to fight for joy. (laughs) We have to stand together. We must rely on the Spirit. And, And there is no testimony this side of heaven that is greater than a life that is satisfied in you. So, Father, may we find that um, truth to be evident in our life as well. May we be strengthened in your word. And then may we go and live a life that exalts you in everything that we do, knowing that it is the primary reason we are here and not there. (laughs) Because when we're there, we get to do that for all eternity. What a privilege that will be. Thank you for our time. Amen.